Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another incredible guest. We have with us Dr. Krishan Ramdu, who is the CEO and founder of Timper Health, which I'm sure you've been seeing across the last few years. But they are a startup and the world's first all-in-one ear and hearing healthcare assessment platform. And the beauty of having Krishan on the show is we usually get software plays, software companies, but this is something tangible, something you can really hold in your hand. So absolute pleasure having you on the show today, Krishan. How are you? Welcome to the yeah, show. Good, thank you. Thanks, Abdul. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So there's a lot to discuss. You've had an incredible journey thus far, but we want to take it back to the very beginning. Tell us a bit more about the start of your career, you know, the motivation to study medicine and become a clinician. Gosh, let's get this game well yeah. back. Um, <laughs> but I guess the, the motivation for uh, becoming a clinician, I guess everyone has their different, um, you know, experiences and um, kind of people people that have shaped their career. And, you know, for me, if, if I really look back, I guess my, taking it way back, I guess my, my dad came to the UK, he uh, trained as a nurse, came in 1967. And I guess seeing him in healthcare probably was that first foray in me looking and saying, okay, you know, this is a very rewarding profession. Um, I could see, you know, how he was helping people and, you know, with anyone in life, like you have those inspirations at an early age. And I think that probably did, did, um, start me thinking about it. I then went and did a uh, work experience. Um, and you know, I had multiple things which I thought I would look at. And actually it was, a, it was either going down the healthcare medical or maybe looking at kind of on a business side as well, like in, in finance, but actually healthcare was always where my heart was at. And I guess what was funny is when I went as a 15 year old um, to do work experience for a vascular surgeon in Oxford, where I grew up, what was very ironic, almost 10 years later, or just under 10 years later, when I finished um, medical school, when you have to apply and you have to rank it back and then you had to, to rank all the different jobs in the whole country, the job that I got was working for that same vascular surgeon. Oh, wow. So it was as, as if it was meant to be. So I think there are a few experiences that made me think about healthcare. And um, it was just funny that that was the same surgeon that I followed as a, as a budding uh, kind of a medic. No, amazing. Tell us a bit more about med school, the med school experience. Did it live up to your expectations? <clears throat> so I think medical school for me, it certainly did. I mean, I think when you, any degree that you do and medical school is a fun time. Like I think you build friendships for life. Mm. If I was looking at, you know, when I was a, a medical student, you know, what did I want to do? I, you know, essentially you want to make sure you pass your exams and you want to get through. And I, and I think I did try to make sure that, um, you know, all medics are very diligent anyway, or I think most, most of us are, yeah. um, and it did live up to expectations. I think I've, I've got friends for life there. And I think having, um, those experiences, I, I had a choice between going to London. So I was either going to go to UCL or actually Leicester. And it was funny, actually, I decided to choose Leicester, oh, wow. um, which was a great, which was a great um, experience for me. But it was my cousin who told me to go there. She um, was doing law there at the time. She's now subsequently gone on to become global business affairs lead at Google. So she's done pretty well. Oh, oh, wow. Amazing. So, she, so it's a kind of fight in, fight, fight in the family or who's, who's going to become the more successful, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, you know, it, the best thing because what I liked about Leicester was uh you know it was a more campus-based university um you know lived with friends in halls and my wife who um went to Imperial she uh had a different experience enjoyed it as well but uh, yeah it definitely lived up to the expectations and um mm. interestingly all my friends who I've stayed close to have all actually moved down to London anyway 
Oh, wow. For medics. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. If you could look back at your medical school sort of education now and the curriculum, right? In what way does medical school contribute or not contribute to becoming an entrepreneur, would you say? I think if I look back at my time, I'm not sure whether it contributed to it. And I'd probably say there were more external factors Mm -hmm. that now contribute to me becoming an entrepreneur. Um, But I think it's changing. I think it is changing. And I think the one thing which I would say, having spoken to some medical students now, is it's become much more accessible to think Mm -hmm. about um, entrepreneurship. And and equally, even when I was, you know, qualified as a doctor, was going through surgical training, the thinking outside of the box was definitely not something that was common. And it it would have been, really, you want to go and do that? And still, you know, I had ENT consultants saying, oh, you're going to think about leaving. And then now, full circle, they're like, okay, you made the best decision. Yeah. (laughs) The impact you're having. Um, But I think at that stage, when I look back at medical school, for me personally, I don't know whether it shaped that journey into entrepreneurship, Mm. um, but it certainly did shape my views on how we're building Timper because of some of the experiences I've had in medical school and then subsequently practicing as a clinician. Amazing, definitely. So you mentioned about training as a clinician, ENT. Tell us how ENT became the specialty of choice. I find it extremely squeamish. I don't know why. Like I did like a bronc once. I saw like the vocals. I was like, this is not for me. Tell us what drew you to ENT. And I know it's a super competitive and a highly sought after specialty. It was actually quite straightforward for me. I think I, I had a, going through medical school, as I said, I think you wanted to get to the end and you wanted to, to, and then only when you, and it's very, I think anybody will tell you being a medical student to then becoming a doctor. Yeah. Completely different. <laughs> and um, I, I was in my F2 year and I did a rotation in ENT and mm-hmm. I always in, enjoyed ENT. I thought it was in, interesting, but I wasn't still sure which path I knew I was thinking going down the surgical route but I knew maybe general surgery wasn't for me or that type of specialty but what really clicked for me was after doing that ENT blog one I had um, a great consultant who I thought was very inspirational I had a great reg as well who was equally um, very he was a, he's a bit more junior reg as well so was, there wasn't so much of a gap hmm. but fundamentally what what drew me to ENT was the fact that I um, found a specialty that I didn't mind going and reading about after work. Uh, and I mm. think if you've got a special, if you've got something like that, you know, anything you're passionate about, you're going to end up enjoying it. And I think that was what the re- that, that actually drew me to ENT um, the most. And, and also some of that positive encouragement. So, you know, that Reg, that ENT consultant I worked with said, actually, you know what, Chris, you're not bad at this. Have you thought about um, applying for core surgery to then obviously go on to higher surgical training? So, um, yeah, that was, I think, when you find something you're not, you like reading about, it makes it easier um, mm. to, to, to absorb. That's interesting. It reminds me of the quote, you know, pursue the things that seem like play to you, but feel like work to others. And that's yeah. where you kind of go into your stride. Tell us a bit more about the training itself, because obviously, you know, surgical training in this country is tough and rough. How was your experiences with it? And, you know, if you had any obstacles, how did you overcome those obstacles while training? And I think it's the same for any any specialty training. You know, there's some that are more competitive than others, but equally they're, they're all competitive. And the way that I approached it, and I think it is, which I think still is is true now. And I'm not. I'm. I still feel I'm still. You know, 
young enough to, yeah. to have done it, but I was, you know, I was in practice for half 13 years, but still, um, I was able, I think you always got to look and actually I could probably use the same analogy when we get there or kind of, um, the next stages as I actually becoming a founder is thinking, well, which founders have gone to the next stage. So you think, well, I want to get to that level. So what I was able to do was, uh, look at kind of those SHOs who had got into core surgical training next stage, look at those registrars who had just got into, um, reg training and, you know, really follow their guidance. And I think finding someone who you can actually see they've done it. So how can I get to that next stage? And, um, also, I mean, it, there's no rocket science, but look at the person spec, what are the hoops you have to jump through? And I think yeah. medicine is still that way. And, you know, I would hope that maybe, um, in the future, there'll be some other parts of those point system, obviously to, to get into, into training that are a bit more diverse, which I think is changing as well so that you get acknowledged for some of the things you do outside of medicine as well, because mm. that is the way healthcare is going. And certainly is the future of the, the future medic. No. I believe as well. No, definitely. And I think there's a lot of points there we can kind of pull across. You were quite senior before kind of you did the transitions across to different specialty. Were you focused early on in your ENT training just solely to kind of become a consultant? You know, where does kind of Timper Health come into this? Was it something you were sitting on, thinking about? Tell us how that kind of fit into your journey. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely, and then you're always on that path to get to the end. Mm. Um, and I kind of said that twice, like that, where, you know, where are you, where are you always heading and making sure you're moving in the right direction. And I, I had always kind of thought about different ways of say assessing patients and how they access care, because certainly in a surgical specialty, one thing which was frustrating was seeing a lot of patients who are waiting so long mm. to see me as a specialist when actually they had something very relatively simple. And you do all this training, uh, what do you want to do? You want to have a, you want to be able to operate really on the appropriate patients mm. um, and see patients who need your specialist experience. So I always had that inside me of thinking, well, I want to use my skills to the best of my ability. And uh, at that early stage, I think when I was an early junior reg, I think the only way to get some headspace to kind of explore kind of technology, I'd always been interested in technology, was actually to, to be able to take some time like alongside. So that's why I kind of registered for a higher degree. So, um, an MD, which then became into a PhD. What I was really fortunate as well was having, again, having the right people at the right time. So I had an ENT consultant who I was working with, who also saw that and, and also created the opportunity for me to have some of that time to keep doing my day-to-day -day training, but also have some time to do some research which allowed me to kind of explore some of those ideas as well. And, um, I think that was really helpful as I kind of, as I really mapped out my career, because as mm. I started seeing that I was developing things for Timper and realizing that I wanted to change the way pathways delivered, do it in a digital way and was seeing some real tangible ways in which people were saying, you know, if you develop this, there's definitely an mm. opportunity. Um, I think that only then made me where I was going in one direction think, well, actually there's a huge opportunity for me here. And, um, one of those early things, and I think this is definitely one thing to, and if you're ever thinking about going down a different route is obviously putting yourself out there into environments, which you might not think you'll have an opportunity. And I was fortunate to, it was, a, it was a while ago. It was like an AGM of a, a, a charity event mm -hmm. and just so happened in there, there was the medic managing director of boots, hearing care, spec savers, oh, wow. 
and I was talking about the future of hearing and how, you know, I believe that it should change and developing this technology as an idea. Mm. And um, they both came up to me after and said that if you actually develop this, this is going to be game changing for our sector. And I was like, oh, okay. And I didn't think much Amazing. of it, but obviously I was, well, there's definitely a need. And I think there's always these things which happen, um, but you've got to create your own luck as well. And you've got to be there to, mm. to, to be in front of the right people at the right time. Mm. No, definitely. Shan, so a little bit about now the development of this, right? So we always speak to a lot of tech entrepreneurs, right? And there's loads of tech platforms, but you can just build the idea that you have in your head. You've got a device, right? If someone's sitting there now with a with an idea that is physical, how do you bring something like that mm. to life? Because that's not, in my mind, as easy as tech and software and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's not easy. But <laughs> I think I think there are ways there are ways to think about it, and particularly if the the audience here is kind of you know medically focused. You know, you can be you know the way I did it. I guess we I got some. I won a prize basically, which gave some very soft, like five thousand pounds, mm. to kind of get some money to go and do, and they, and that's the one beauty of being in training is there are these kind of small pots of money bursaries that mm. you can maybe uh, get, and so that was able to me kind of think, well, how do you get this proof of concept idea as well? And I obviously had a consultant who was supportive mm. of that as well, and I think it's really important. I think new age consultants are are very much like that. It was, develop a proof of concept proof of concept was like okay how do you solve for at that point it was like a wax removal tool mm. from there then managed to win another prize to get a little bit more funding to make it look look just a little bit nicer um and i think from there when they then go and raise some money you've got to craft the story and what's helpful mm. with the hardware piece is having that something that someone can feel look touch yeah. and it just helps them visualize okay, I can see this being in this domain. We've got the bones here of something. I think when you do go and raise money, I think that that was very helpful for us, um, that someone could feel and go, ah, oh, okay, I completely understand um, what, what he's trying to sell here. Hmm, definitely. And I want to talk about fundraising in a moment. Tell us a bit more about the actual developing manufacturing the device itself. Was it something a prototype you made, you know, the Steve Jobs style in the garage? Or did you have to go to like a manufacturing company? You know, I'm interested in dissecting that bit. So in the first stages, um, I was able to kind of collaborate with an engineer um, at Imperial College <laughs> and, you know, just looking at kind of some ideas of, of just saying that this is what I'm thinking mm. about. And that that was quite helpful in just scoping out some designs. And then when, when I got a little bit more funding, went to a design house okay. to really make it properly and, and put the bones of, if you then went to manufacture, how would you take it from a proof of concept to a manufacturing piece? And um, they were able to rapidly prototype some devices. So then following that, when you have, when you're at that stage where you have your proof of concept, you can see that actually um, you can do a feasibility study with it. Mm -hmm. Then it's the next stage of saying, well, I need to get some capital to actually go and manufacture. And, and that was at the stage where we raised our first million Mm. Um, and that was a juncture for me and point saying, yeah, someone's funding you a million pounds here. Are you going to continue going down this route or are you thinking of, of actually another route? And, uh, that's where we were able to then take those designs to a contract manufacturer, then obviously go and, um, build and scale. And actually in the first stage, we actually kept it very much in the UK because we were still low volumes. Mm -hmm. 
then but what we had done is get the right building blocks of how then you would want to scale it to an actual factory mm. um and with that money as well was looking at the regulatory landscape i think it's really important in a medical device space to make sure you know where you sit because sometimes if you know that you can sit within a class one medical device then making sure you don't fall out of that window mm. which is yeah. what, what we made sure that we did definitely Amazing. just before talking about fundraising at one moment in that journey you obviously flip specialties. Tell yeah. us, was this the point when you thought, do I pursue ENT surgical training? Do I switch? Do I leave the professional together? So tell us about the rationale. I can imagine maybe a few sleepless nights as well, right? Yeah, it was, it was a really difficult choice, actually. And it was a real moment in time. Um, and I think one of the things which helped decide that, so you've got this uh, term sheet or check that's coming in for you know a large amount of money. You're then saying, okay, there's some real opportunity here. And for me, obviously, I, I, I knew where I wanted to get to kind of in ENT. But I had I asked a few of my consultant colleagues and they said, you know what, you don't want to look back, Chris, in five years' time and think, you know what, you missed a huge opportunity because there mm. obviously is one now. And I think when you get the support of colleagues, and granted, not everybody, they were like, what are you doing? You're mad. <laughs> This is, you should not, you should just get to the end, get to the end. I think the ones are true and, and can see, the, not that those guys weren't being true that said no, I think those that could see the potential and also then speaking to people outside of medicine was helpful in me thinking, okay, let's switch away from ENT. But what I did then wasn't actually leave medicine because my heart wasn't ready to leave medicine. I switched into GP training. So I went from like an ST6 to a GPST1 and you can imagine yeah. a complete game change in terms of what you're seeing. And But for me, it was a kind of means to an end. And um, mm. I remember having that conversation with my wife and she was like, well, if you think you can handle it. And I think you've just got to be as, you know, for me, I'm a very, you know, relatively goal focused individual. So I knew that where I wanted to get to, and this was part of that. And I think with all those things, you've got to take away your ego as well as being like, oh, you know, I'm now an SHO. What does it matter? You just mm. got to get on and and uh and and do the job i think that was a in that that was one moment in time of saying okay i'm gonna do that and i think it was a bit easier to manage kind of starting and running a company with doing some of that gp training because it was a little bit more flexible um mm. and then i think the next moment in time was actually then making the choice to leave um completely how hard was that That's bit? That I think was the, the harder. Well, I think they were both hard in, in at different times. And mm. we then, I think the, the time when I left, we just raised, I think another small amount of like two, two, two and a bit, two and a half million. And at that moment in time, when you've got that amount of money, I think you've got investors there saying, well, Krish as well, are you, you've got to be fully committed. Yeah. And that wasn't actually, and they weren't pushy on that because I was still getting things done and doing the milestones which I said we would achieve yeah. but equally then you've got a workforce here who are you're still working as a kind of full-time doctor I had two children at that time trying to finish writing my PhD it's just too many <laughs> spinning plates and I think if you want to I still only got two, two, two okay. children two children stopped um and uh the I think if you're going to do anything well you've got to dedicate your time to it. And mm. I think fundamentally, if you've got kids, you've got a business to run, you know, something has to give. And equally with that time, I was able to maybe even in my own mind, de-risk it in my own mind. 
saying mm. this can become what I've always believed it can become. Mm. And then obviously then that, that was then the decision to be like, okay, let's go full time. And, and actually that was just over three and a half years. And now you can see the company's really yeah. uh, been on a really good trajectory. So talking a little bit about now your journey to sort of making that full time switch now, right? I want to talk a little bit about the investment of hard work. Not enough people, I think, talk about how hard it is and how much time people put in. So you've talked about having, you had two kids, a PhD, you were working full-time as a surgeon till ST6, then you became a full-time GP trainee. Talk us, to, talk us a little bit about what it was actually like. How many hours were you spending a day on work? How many hours were you sleeping? How many hours were you at the gym? Uh, give us an idea of <laughs> what it was actually like for you. Yeah, I mean, incredibly hard. I think it's, it's all trying to be about balance. And um, I think without a doubt, and I still say that now, I think when it was trying to balance two jobs, it was kind of working full time as a doctor, come home, put the children to bed and then working like till midnight, um, yeah. you know, until the next morning. And um, for me, kind of my balance is yes, trying to do some exercise. And, uh, you know, I inherently just wake up very early before the children wake up to do some exercise, whether that be half an hour, but I think there's some good you know, you hear all about these things and you've got to find that thing for yourself, which gives you that mm. kind of closed off time. And I think it is challenging. And even now, though, like, you know, you've got a company to run and you've got to build that structure. And I, mm. I'm definitely not the best at it because I will be like, yes, let's get this meeting in at this point. Let's get this meeting in at <laughs> this point, um, because you're you want to kind of to to put 100 percent and 200 percent into your business, because you also look at it from a lens of well, look what I have, you could argue, given up to now pursue, pursue mm. this. And the balance, I mean, yeah, I mean, the day to day, it's, uh, um, I think you want to try and be good at everything, you're never going to be able to achieve that. And I think what I'm trying to kind of work towards is kind of what well, I know what my superpowers are, mm. and where can I get people to support me in those bits that I need help with. Um, and for them to make that superpower and then i think the balance comes with kind of family and you know everyone has their own motivation and drive which i think is a real right thing you need to know what makes you wake up you want to be passionate about what you do but why are you doing it as well mm-hmm. and um i think me trying to balance that alongside then yeah trying to look out for some time for myself it's challenging um whether i get it right all the time who knows? <laughs> mm. <laughs> well i can say one thing the gym is going well you are filling in your shirt <laughs> Very well. Okay, I can see the gym is going well. You mentioned superpowers. I think it's the lighting outdoors. <laughs> yeah. uh, you you mentioned superpowers. Tell us what your superpowers are. Okay, well, that, you know, it's always difficult to kind of think about um, yourself. It's always better for someone else to say that. I think one that I always have, and I think that's not that's also in medicine as well as um, working. You know, now having run Temper, is um, listening. I think you're never going to have all the answers and being a single first time founder, single founder, you've got to surround yourself with people who have also been there and done it. And I think being able to listen and not have that ego around you saying no, my way or the highway, I think you've got to have, be able to listen and then take a balanced approach. And I think that's where medics, I think if you're looking at transferable skills, what do we need to do? We need to absorb information take that information and then make almost a decisive decision based on that. And I think that has certainly um, helped me in the journey that I'm going on. And I think that definitely is one of my key skills. 
Um, the other, I think, is communication as well. I think in order for you to scale a business, you've got to be able to kind of communicate your mission and vision in different ways for varying people within the organization, as well as to investors. And I think that, again, transferable skill, what's the first thing they teach you at medical school? Communication skills. Mm. And I think being able to um, exceed at that has certainly been helpful. And as we've grown the company now, and I think you would ask, I would hope, ask, ask the people in the company. I think everyone is very clear on what our mission and vision here mm. is at Timper to kind of, you know, democratize that ear and hearing healthcare journey, not only in the developed world, but, you know, low income resource countries as well. Mm. I think it's incredible. Mm. And I think one of the key traits for founders is the ability to listen. You mentioned kind of the different rounds of funding investment. Tell us a bit more about the actual process, because a lot of our listeners are health tech founders and operators that are looking to fundraise. I think to date, you've raised over $30 million. Tell us about the process, some advice to founders, and for the other listeners who are thinking, why on earth do you need $30 million? So, you know, tell us how you do it and how you spend the money. <laughs> well, I think each stage of funding is very different. And I think mm -hmm. now, having done it, a couple of times with two relatively recent large rounds with 8 million and then 35, uh, 23 million recently. I think at each stage, you've got to be very clear on kind of what you just said, like, what are you going to do with the money? Because you need to be able to articulate, I'm asking you for some money and this is what I'm going to spend it on. This is what it's going to be. This is what it's going to do for the business. And I think what I've tried to be very clear in those funding rounds is make it very easy for people to understand what you're going to use the money for because actually if you go too far down the line and say actually we're going to develop this platform that's going to do x y and z investors are smart they will know that it's going to cost so much money and you're not going to be able to develop that in that in that phase i think you've got to show them the roadmap but then actually be very clear and definitive about what you want to spend that money and what you will i think they're also very, you know as you raise money is it's at different stages like mm. as you get more mature it then becomes a little bit more based on numbers in the mm. early stages it's probably on product development and making sure that you become laser focused and you know in the early days you know that kind of pre-seed seed round you know i think we did some of our rounds without even people knowing we existed it was just really just focus your mind for me it was product 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 like get mm -hmm. product right and then only when we did our seed run in Series A, we actually came out of the woodwork. And like we were in boots without people even knowing it was Timper in boots because oh, wow. a lot of people would have raised, would have made a big song and dance about it. But it was actually, let's get it right first and mm. use all our resource to get that product right. I think it depends on the stage, kind of what you, how that process is. I think you've got to have a lot of conversations as well. And then how you spend the money, as I said, it, it at different, like for now, like what would we be using the, the money? That's a lot of money that 23 million people think, oh, you know, that's, you must be uh, swimming You're in minted, it. Right. You made <laughs> yeah. the best decision leaving EMT, right? <laughs> I think there's a, big, there's a big difference between personally yeah, company. And I think that's sometimes you, you've got to explain that to people. It doesn't actually go into my bank account. It goes into <laughs> yeah. bank account. And the, the, the thing is, you know, where our journey is now, it's like, how do we continue to grow within the UK? How do we scale within the US and how do we continue some product development? And all of that, as you keep trying to innovate and keep ahead of the curve, you know, it ends up becoming, you end up do, because you keep going to the new level, next level. Mm. So as you go to the next level, you're doing more things. So actually your burn becomes higher and you spend mm. more money. So actually 
I think at any stage um, it, you will you will spend that money. And equally, venture capitalists want you to spend that money. They don't just mm-hmm. want money sitting there, but they want you to spend it. And that's why I said it's been very clear on what you're going to spend the money on. Mm-hmm. You want to be as efficient as possible with your cash spend as well. Uh, you know, I think it always bodes well to future investors of a cash efficient business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Definitely. apart from talking about capital now, I know investors also bring a lot of what they call smart capital now, right? What other things have the investors done for you? What things have they unlocked um, for Timper as well? You know, we've been really, really fortunate. You know, I've always tried to bring in investors who are giving value add. And, you know, in mm-hmm. our seed round had a fantastic array of individual actually investors we had we had the term sheet from um some vcs but actually i chose that time to bring in some individual ultra high net worth individuals who can actually open doors for us and you know mm. they came there was a group that came together in the us so like you know one of them is uh one of the founding investors in facebook mm-hmm. one we've got oh. the ex-head of apple health we've got one investor who's a five-time unicorn founder oh, wow. there's not many of them <laughs> i was gonna say yeah <laughs> and i think if you and I think bringing on, you know, you've got to spend time speaking to all of them and understanding the mission and vision and what has been good. And I think why I talk about kind of communication is each one of them, I've been able to build, you know, a form of relationship with so that actually if I've asked them, you know, can you make this introduction or actually um, we've got a lot of data here, like what's your view on how we can think about this and to make it meaningful? Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's looking for investors who can do that. And they have, they've made incredible introductions. Um, you know, we have a great board as well, you know, our chairman um, as well, who, who who's come on and equally, you know, invested in the company is um, how he, you know, he was the chairman of the NHS and he stepped down mm. as to, to come in as chairman of Timper. He has been instrumental in opening doors, but the key thing is, with all of those, they, they can open the door for you, but no one can, is actually going to make it happen. Yeah. Um, and so you still have to be able to deliver on that. So you could be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring this person on board and they're going to help me. One way or another, it's still fundamentally yeah. boils, boils down to you and your team delivering on that. And you can't you know, have any qualms to think, oh, someone else is going to do the work for you. I think you've just got to know that you're on this journey and you've got to make it happen. And then when we bring on institutional investments, so like with Octopus who have come on, um, they come with a whole network support as well. And mm. I think as a, as a founder, you need to be looking for that of which venture capital fund, fund will support you. And they, they've been great for us. They've been really supportive, supportive in myself, um, as well as supportive of the team as well. Mm. I think that's incredible. And I like the point of investors, advisors, they are able to open doors, but it still comes down to you to walk yeah. through those doors. And I think that's just such an important point. I think it wouldn't make sense if we didn't discuss kind of the rise of artificial intelligence. And, you know, you're seeing these incredible things, Microsoft, you know, scanning an eye and telling you everything you can imagine. How does that help you and your mission with Timper Health? Um, and, you know, how has it changed the landscape for hearing loss? Because I remember reading someone's like over $900 billion worth of costs incurred by, you know, unattended hearing loss it's a huge issue and i think the example you gave of the you know ophthalmology you know i think ears are probably 10 years behind the advancement they've done in in eyes Mm. and you know everyone goes for an ear test an eye test but actually you should be just checking your hearing at the same time you know we're all sitting here with kind of headphones in 
And, you know, by 2030, they're talking about hearing loss, overtaking diabetes and cataracts. In oh, the wow. Burdens. That's not just because of the aging population, but that's because there's also the bunch of us who listen to loud music. We have headphones in our ears every day and you know, whether ears weren't necessarily built for that. And, you know, that mm. those long term effects will start to come through. You know, where where we kind of sit of kind of with AI is that, you know, to date, the technology has been used on more than 300,000 patients. We sit on the world's largest bank of ear and hearing healthcare images and videos with some associated health data. Obviously, we are bringing in a machine learning algorithm into that so that it will help from, as you just mentioned, like a non-specialist will look in the ear and it and the technology will tell you this is the diagnosis. Mm. And we're well on our way to do that. And actually, we will be uh, launching that. And in actual fact, we've built those algorithms already. Mm-hmm. And Amazing. what we have to do, why I talked at the beginning about regulatory landscape, is you can only run as hard as those regulatory bodies allow yeah. you to run. Because you can't launch it until it becomes a medical device in its own right. And um, so, you know, we built that into our kind of pipeline of, of development. And so, as well as diagnostically, it would be great if we could sit here and say, okay, Abdul, you've come in, had your ears checked, you've got normal hearing today, come back in five years' time, and, oh, something looks different. Is there a way in which we could have predicted something earlier? Like you see some of the changes in the eye. Mm. There's no reason why you can't think about that kind of for the ears as well. And um, I think some of that prediction health as well is going to be very important. Hearing loss, single biggest modifiable risk factor for prevention of dementia. Um, There's obviously a lot of age-related hearing loss. So identifying that earlier will prevent some of those downstream issues. I think Timper has a real opportunity to be by making it more accessible means that actually you can go and get your ears tested really quickly, 20, 30 minute appointment, just to say everything's fine, come back in a year. And I think slowly, I think mindset will change. And as I said, even as the next generation is starting to come through, if you're listening to your, with your AirPods and you're thinking, oh, you know, I can't hear very well. You'd much rather try and know that actually, you know, I should put my headphones a little bit, 10% lower rather Mm. than last, you know, whatever music you're listening to, um, on the tube so yeah i think i think that's the where ai is going to play a big role definitely i'm mm-hmm. very conscious of my airpods right now i want to burn them <laughs> <laughs> i've noticed that krishan hasn't got his in though so, so he's not using I any know. airpods there you go. <laughs> so that's always a little telltale sign krishan, tell us a little bit about the end users now so the people who are training with your devices right when you first introduced it what were what was their response what challenges did you face and what is it like now? Because I've noticed you've got Timper Academy, uh, where you're training yes. loads and loads of people. Uh, talk to us about why the academy came about, how it came about, um, and what are you doing essentially with all of that? The academy came about, I guess, and again, you can link that very closely to, to medicine. Like, you know, when you're going through training, you need mm-hmm. to be seen by your trainers as being competent in what you're doing. And I think for me, when I looked at kind of the landscape of people First of all, if you want to kind of deliver a service which traditionally, let's say, was delivered in a specialist environment Mm. and by doctors, how are you going to build a program which you can accredit non-specialists? They have to go through a process. And I think our training program, Mm. our training academy is is the highest accredited training program in the country. Um, And it's not just gone in the days of see one, do one, teach one. People who come on the training course, they all have to be uh, at least in in NVQ level two and above, kind of with healthcare experience. I think we're finding our sweet spot with the um, allied health professionals Mm -hmm. that should go through pharmacists, 
nurses, nurse practitioners, optometrists um, delivering the service, but they each have to go through a process. And those who, let's say, are outside of that remit, there are programs which get them up to that level. Mm. But what we're very clear on is that someone who isn't safe to go through our process, we will definitely say, look, you're not competent. You have to go and see more patients. And our, our journey in a very short process is they have an online webinar. They then have a learning management system, which they have to, to go through. So very much like when you go and do your ALS, ATLS, you've got to read that big yeah. booklet. It's a online program where you have to do the learning and the modules before you can come on the course. You then do the course. You then are observed. We have these Timper simulation heads and then observed seeing yourself perform it on real patients. And only then you're signed off. And then they also have to have, because of the way the platform's built, it becomes your own logbook. So you can mm -hmm. see how many cases you're seeing. So actually the academy, I think, was probably built on my experiences of a surgical trainee. Yeah. And uh, that's why I always stand really behind that we're not, and even when I, you know, I sometimes say to the marketing guys, like you see, it comes across, oh, all these people are getting trained. Yeah. The messaging needs to be much clearer saying like, it's a proper academy. Like you cannot go and deliver it without having passed the assessments. Yeah. And the team are so good that people will, the majority of people will go through. But one thing which is very clear is if you're not competent, then you won't go through very much like your ARCP. If you're not competent, you, you, you've got to do some other stuff. Yeah, definitely. When I, first saw it the fear was kind of the st the stories you hear in the aesthetic industry right you have these people buying botox doing fillers in the in the living room and with the device i don't know if there's a regulation in terms of who can buy it but you can easily have someone buy it a non-clinician non-trained individual offering it you know microsuction for airwax and you end up with a catastrophe and that damages the brand mm. and you know, how do you prevent that when you're trying to build a culture, build a brand? And we know the value of brand. Well, no one can buy a Timper unless they've been on the Timper Academy. Very and good. <laughs> so we don't actually, you have, you have to be an accredited Timper uh, provider to be able to use it. I don't think, I don't think there's any that are out on eBay yet. But, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, you can't, you can't. Uh, and equally, the way the system works is that you, we know, we are able to know who's utilizing the system. And if those users are not utilizing it we can always reach out to them to say is everything okay do you need training and equally the way that ai works in the background like if you start seeing some cases where okay there's more blood let's say which is you know it's actually relatively rare i mean you, your users i don't think will be able to see it but actually i've got one here oh wow. the way that we oh, wow. built it was you can't actually the suction probe can't actually push through to damage the Ah, okay. So we built it so this actually has its own safety mechanism. So you can't actually perforate the eardrum with it. No. Um, which again, you're putting it in the hands of non-specialists. You've got to think about all those things. Mm. Um, and there are systems out there. You can buy them off eBay that say, oh, look in the ear and buy these loops. And I've always been a big advocate to say, well, if you are going to offer that, you've got to put these safety measures in, in place. And um, I think there's some some strict guidance we give on but, but it's a really useful comment because actually maybe that is the perception that people have. Oh, you know, we're training everybody and anybody was actually that isn't the case. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, it's very reassuring to hear. Um, hopefully this will be on video, so hopefully they can see the, the oh, little, okay. Okay. which would be amazing. Taking a step back and going back onto you, Krish, tell us a bit more about life of a CEO, how you manage the company, how you run it. Uh, and an interesting question I always ask, and I asked Ben from Sarah was, how do you prevent 
being pushed out and you know being in a driving seat because when you raise you know the tens of millions sometimes they want to replace the original founder and operator with bringing someone a bit more experience in so keen to hear about that yeah i think it, it's always something that you think about because you think well you know how I, I'll, you might think you know how do i know i'm doing a good job and that's not a ceo that's like anybody like if you're doing how are you doing a good job but i think to answer the first point of how you run the company i think the best thing is you've got to get the right people. I think what we've done here at Timper is we've got a great senior leadership team um, and a great team in general, like everyone who understands why they're here, what's the mission of the company. And and certainly as we've navigated kind of the UK company and now we've got boots on the ground in the US, making sure the US team understand that same culture and values. And, you know, part of that, you know, we've really invested in the US team coming and spending some time over here in the UK. So they can see how the company runs. And I think that's been a tremendous amount of help in, in making sure that the company is run at a point and people know, you know, one of the key things that I asked for in the company is that you just expect everyone to work hard. And mm. uh, I think if we're still small enough and we're getting bigger, but you're still small enough that you'll know that everyone, you'll know people who aren't pulling their weight. Mm. And you know, from a day to day perspective, it's trying to make sure that you kind of evolve in this kind of growth phase of the company, how you do delegate to others. And you, there's never going to be anybody in the company, probably who's better at kind of selling the mission and vision of the company. And I think you've got to be able to though, back your team to go and deliver mm-hmm. um, as well. And of course, there's always going to be challenges, which come because fundamentally, the buck stops with you anyway, you've got to be able to to think about that and think, okay, well, how, if my role as the CEO is to keep the company moving forward, you raise capital to grow the company. It's making sure you stay true to that and equally evolve into a way of uh, taking some emotion out of it. Like if you've got to make difficult decisions, you have to make difficult decisions. And kind of the theme, I guess, here in this podcast is similar to medicine. Like, you know, you are making, particularly in surgery, some very critical decisions. And so I've, one thing I have been, which is really, as I'm very happy to do that because I think that was in my training to be like, well, you've got to make a decision to, to make this cut here or this cut here, and it's going to have a long-term consequence yeah. and, um, and be able to think very quickly. Um, so I, I have felt that that has been something that's, that's helped me. And in order of kind of to almost, like you said, like you, you asked others, like, how do you stay in the hot seat Hmm. the way to stay in that is to again it's getting the team around you you know as you as the company gets bigger i found that what i need to do is think well what is my real key skills what am i really really good at and what am i good at that actually other people there's there's no one better than me because i'm living and breathing this this company and then fill the other parts which you are kind of competent at but know that actually you are doing it because you're competent but actually there's someone else who could really excel in that yeah is then put that kind of find that person for you there find that person in another role i think if you do that effectively and hopefully so far it seems to be that's what we're that i'm able to do i think then as a as you would expect that then you become an effective ceo because the ceo Mm. is almost like being able to you're almost building a house and one of my mentors said to me, it's like, what you've got to do is, you know, of that vision of what that house is going to look like, what do you need to, you've got to bring in the best contractors around to make that happen. And I think that's what you've got to think about kind of as your, as your team, but fundamentally 
those contractors say, we think you should do this. You've got to make the decision. Definitely. I like the example of the house and, um, I can tell you're a very effective CEO, but the passion to kind of change the landscape and kind of make hearing assessment accessible kind of shines through for sure. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I've got one more question about the team now that you've you've built uh, over the years now, right? When you first started the hiring process, was it a case of you just brought in the friends around you? Or was because the, the the reason I asked that is because I was reading this article and a lot of mistakes people make is actually that where we we're all the same people we're all identically skilled we have the same exact skill assets um, and often down the line you hit problems um, did you go along that same journey or were you did you have the foresight to know which skills you needed to bring in what was it like yeah so I I, I didn't. Uh do that kind of with friends or family to come mm. and help. I think I did it a slightly different way in the fact that um, I actually brought people in who had been there and done it a little bit. So like my first hire was my COO. He'd been involved mm. in startups before. He'd been involved in um, some exits, at, you know, varying levels. Some he would probably say some successful, some not so successful, mm-hmm. but at least he'd been in that environment. And that was the first thing that I said, well, I, I haven't operationally ran a company. So mm-hmm needs to hire that. And I think I did that with someone who's a little bit more senior because it automatically then stepped up kind of the way in which the company was. And actually the leadership team are, you know, have had some experience. And now like we've got a good, you know, I didn't go down that route because at the end of the day, you do want, as you're scaling a company, you do want people to be pretty open with you saying, Krish, I don't think this is a good idea or "I've, I've got, I think this is a good idea. And you also want, want folks who, any young company has ups and downs. So certainly having people in the uh, company who are understand this is normal, yeah. um, I think is, is certainly, uh, it becomes a better influence than if you're all the same people, then you'll be like, oh yeah, no, this is a bad patch, this is a good patch. How do you actually get to the end? Mm. You, you might always find that you want people to challenge you. Mm. Yeah, definitely. No, it seems you built Timper Health correctly from the ground up, you know, from the hires, from the advisors he brought on, even proof of concept, testing it. It'd be interesting to know what you feel your proudest achievement is so far in the Timper Health journey and what the future looks for you, where you're going. Really the, the proudest moment is, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people, when you get this impact, I guess, is the number of patients that the technology has been used on. I mean, if you're talking near 300,000 patients, you know, oh, I never would have seen that many patients in my whole medical career. Um, And that is a huge impact already that's been making. We've done, you know, where the company's heading, you know, we've done a little bit of work in Cambodia. I think Mm -hmm. the big mission is like, how do you get there? How do you go and create a sustainable service out there for those low income resource country? And it is really, it is really possible. I think you've also got to be realistic in the fact that in order for you to do that in a sustainable way, you need to build a good commercial business as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no. you know, you, you won't be able to sustain otherwise. No, I definitely agree. And it reminds me of kind of the the, the Rwanda Babylon story, and mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, kind of a bit of a downfall on that. And I think a nice way to end the the the, the episode would be your advice to entrepreneurs who want to go out and build and commercialize a medical device. Um, as kind of like a digital health app or software platform, you know, you know, of all the years you've been doing it, what advice would you give to them? From a practical level, <laughs> med device level, med device in particular is really understand the regulatory landscape. 
because that regular mm-hmm. landscape will always be underneath and you will only be able to get things out at that moment in time when you are running those pathways. I think regulation is very important. Um, and then I think from a more holistic approach is the resilience part of it. And you know, that might be a cliche. I think people do talk about resilience, but as I said, any startup journey is without a doubt going to have its ups and downs. And I think you've got to think very clearly as to what is your, what is that thing outside of, because, you know, you will live and breathe this idea and you will go to places and love talking about it to people. But it's also important to have an outlet that makes you have some headspace, not to necessarily think about it, um, you know, every hour of the day, because you will end up not having clarity of thought. So I think Mm. it's kind of resilience, having that out and um, particularly in the med device software space is that regulatory roadmap, because I think that ha- does having an eye, eye on that will help you be ahead of the game and plan accordingly. I think that's great advice. And that's, like you mentioned, practical advice. Krish, you are a super busy superstar. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, sharing your story. I know we asked a bunch of questions covering it all to some degree. <laughs> so um, thank you once again, buddy. No, thank you for having me, both of you. Really, pleasure. No. real pleasure. Absolute pleasure.